0: We'll read from verses 17 to 21 of the third chapter of Joel. These are God's words. So you shall know that I am the Lord your God, who dwells in Zion, my holy mountain, and Jerusalem shall be holy, and strangers shall never again pass through it. And in that day the mountains shall drip sweet wine, and the hills shall flow with milk, and all the stream beds of Judah shall flow with water, and the fountain shall come forth from the house of the Lord, and water the valley of Shittim. Egypt shall become a desolation, and Edom a desolate wilderness, for the violence done to the people of Judah, because they have shed innocent blood in their land. But Judah shall be inhabited forever. In Jerusalem to all generations, I will avenge their blood, blood I have not avenged, for the Lord dwells in Zion. May the Lord as a blessing to the readers, hearers, and doers of his holy and errant and infallible word. You may be seated, except for our kids who are of age three to eight. You can be dismissed at this time uh, with our uh, great children's volunteers. And I see our good brother Jonathan is back and ready to go. Looks like Jabin is tagging up with him. And so um, all of our kids, three to eight, I hope you guys have a beautiful time in the Lord. For the rest of you guys, I bring you greetings as one of the many victors from the Mississippi State Ole Miss game. You know, I already got a few amens already. Um, I am um, I'm probably a little too kind when it comes to football games Uh, most of my friends when it comes to uh, watching Ole Miss football it does not really matter who Ole Miss plays I have a philosophy where if like Ole Miss is doing good and when they're playing like against in bowl games then Mississippi's doing good so I'm like hey you know that's great Ole Miss won Mississippi won that's pretty good my friends aren't like that Um, I got a few in this room that aren't like that Um, They really don't care who Ole Miss is playing. They don't care if Ole Miss, if it could look good for the state, they don't really care. They're pretty much, they've made an assumption, or they've made a clear declaration, and that is there are only two sides. There are the people that are for Ole Miss, and then the people that are against Ole Miss. And so it doesn't matter if Ole Miss is playing Florida State, Florida State should beat Ole Miss. It doesn't matter if Ole Miss is playing Florida, they should beat Ole Miss. It really doesn't matter. Everybody has to beat Ole Miss because there are no other sides besides the Ole Miss side, and then everybody else. And I can see a little bit better where my friends land on this, because the same can be said about Joel chapter 3. There are many nations involved in this text, many teams, if you will. There's Edom, there's, there's... um, there, there is uh, not not just Edom, but there is Judah, Jerusalem, rather. There is Tyre, there is um, there is uh, Sidon, and, and there are so many other different nations involved. And yet, there's really only two sides that you can be on in Joel chapter three. There's the Lord's side, and then there's the other side. It doesn't matter what nation you're from, what country you abide, or what country you live in, what city. You represent there is God's side, and then there's the other side. And on the final day of the Lord, that's what will be before us, two sides, God's side and the other side. And we learn that there are a number of different consequences that are involved in terms of the side that you pick on that day. The first thing we see in Joel chapter 3 is that on the final day of the Lord, God will release his spirit upon everyone who is on his side. It actually starts in chapter 2, chapter 2, verse 28, it says, and we read this last week, it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, your old men shall dream dreams, your young men shall see visions, even on the male and female servants. In those days, I will pour out my spirit, and I will show wonders in the heavens and on the earth, blood and fire and columns of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. The Lord's side. For in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem, there shall be those who escape as the Lord has said, and among the survivors shall be those whom the Lord calls. So as we discussed last week, Joel declares that in the Lord's restoration of all things. He is going to pour out His Spirit on all flesh. We talked about it last week. The old and the young shall have the Spirit of the Lord. The male and the female shall have the Spirit of the Lord. Slave and free shall have the Spirit of the Lord. So there is no exemptions, whether it be gender, whether it be age, whether it be economic or social or class status, there is no exemptions from the Spirit of the Lord. Everyone, every Person will have access to the Spirit of God and the restoration of God provided that that person calls upon the name of the Lord for their salvation and you have been given access to the Spirit contra- or regardless of your position in life regardless of your gender regardless of your class regardless of of, of um, whether or not you're young and old, it does not matter. You have been given access to the Spirit of God, to the comfort of God, to power, literally, that is resident in you to withstand sin and to battle against sin, and a comfort that lives within you to keep you and hold you in the midst of uh, trying times and, and tribulations. And you've been given not only that kind of access, but you've been given spiritually empowered gifting from God that has come from that Spirit. And not only have you been given that, but you You've been sealed by that spirit keeping you until the day of redemption. Even when you don't want to be kept on some days, the spirit is keeping you and holding you fast in Christ. That's what we have been given access to. Everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord has been given that. And in fact, we talked about it last week that there's a a moment, there's a point in the scriptures where this fulfillment is seen, and that's in Acts chapter 2. And that was on the day of Pentecost where the Spirit fell down on God's people. They began to speak in other languages as the Spirit gave them utterance. And the people cried out, what on earth does this mean? And Peter responded by quoting Joel chapter 2. Practically word word, word for word. Telling those gathered that day, those words were being fulfilled that day. But the most important part in that text is what he ties that quote Two. and he ties that quote like we talked about last week to Acts chapter 2 verse 22 through 24 and he says this, I'll, re- I'll read it again from last week. Men of Israel, hear these words, Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst as you yourselves know. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death, but it because it was not possible for him to be held by it, that it being death. And so with these words Peter ties the prophecy of Joel and the fulfillment of that prophecy to Jesus, like we talked about last week. And what does that mean? It means that all of the restoration that is promised in Joel. Joel chapter 2 begins it. Joel chapter 3 continues it. But all that restoration is promised, and not, but it's not tied to a nation. It's not tied to an ethnicity. It's not even tied to the ability for us to keep the law and keep the commandments perfectly. But rather, it is tied to a person and that person being Jesus Christ. And so in embracing Jesus Christ by faith as Savior and Lord and by believing that he paid the price for our sins on the cross and that he rose from the grave with all power in his hand and by turning our lives from sin, from a life of sin, and turning our lives towards the pursuit of his own life, we are assured the restoration of all things. We are assured to be a part of the promise that is prophesied in Joel. In rejecting Jesus Christ, however, in disobedience, we are assured to experience the judgment of God that is also promised by prophecy in Joel. There's two sides. You're either for Ole Miss or you're against him. You're either for God or you're against him. You see, on the final day of the Lord, these are the only two sides that there will be. Those who embrace Jesus Christ will be a part of the restoration of the world, and those who reject him will be a part of the judgment of the world. And So on the final day of the Lord, we said that God will release his spirit upon everyone that calls upon the name of the Lord, everyone that is on his side. But also on the final day of the Lord, God, through Christ, will establish justice and judgment towards everyone who is not on his side. Verses 1 through 8 of chapter 3 reveal to us why this justice is being established. Verses 9 through 16 describe how this justice will be established. So picking up in chapter 3, verse 1, God begins to speak of a time where all the nations that have waged war against him and his people will be dealt with appropriately. Verse 1, it says, For behold, in those days and at that time, when I restore the fortunes of Judah and Jerusalem, I will gather all the nations and bring them down to the valley of Jehoshaphat, and I will enter into judgment with them there on behalf of my people and my heritage Israel because they have scattered them among the nations and have divided up my land. Take note that God deals with those who, who, has, who he has used to deal with his own. Now he's dealing with them. And we've talked about this before as we've navigated through the uh, through the minor prophets in this series, that God will oftentimes use evil to deal with his own and then eventually he will deal with the evil. And so now we see that God is taking a nation and taking nations rather that he has used to purify and to refine and to chastise his own. He is now using that those or he is now turning his attention towards those nations to deal with them appropriately. Never be deceived that evil is is going unpunished. Never be deceived that blaspheming of God is going undealt with. Now, I know we live in this culture and we live in this climate where it seems like, you know, people that are are literally literally mocking God seem to be the ones that are getting getting ahead in life. And so it's easy to think that, man, is this just how things are going to be? I mean, is this, just, is this just the way the world is going to end? And the answer to that question is no. Here is, the prophecy for, here is the prophecy being declared in Joel as he turns his attention to the people that have mocked him. And he says, now it's time to deal with you. But also take note that part of the sequence of the full restoration of God's people is the full judgment of God's enemies. The writing of this world is not just the restoration of God's people. It's the establishment of justice towards God's opposition. God is going to restore his people from the damage done to them. And he is going to establish justice towards the enemies who were without remorse in their commitment of their wrongdoings that led to the damage. Of his people and this too will take place on the final day of the Lord. but also take note of the scale of God's judgment in this unknown valley because this valley is not a place there, there's, there's no historical place that points to this valley. In fact this word that we see this Jehoshaphat is actually it actually means God judges So it's the valley, it means the valley where God judges. So, here in this unknown valley, this place that we later call in this text as we read through Joel 3, the valley of decision, God is going to bring all nations to account. Pay attention to that scale. All nations, and you are either what? On his side? Or you are against him and you stand in his way. And if you stand in his way, then you too will find yourself in the valley of decision. The valley where God judges. Now, another interesting note about this first couple of verses is that this first phrase, for behold, verse 1, for behold in those days and at that time when I restore the fortunes of Judah and Jerusalem, that phrase is that what's interesting about that phrase is that there are other places in Scripture where we see that same phrase. In fact, it should come as no surprise that this phrase also pops up as we are promised and assured the arrival of Jesus Christ. uh, Jeremiah chapter 33, verse 15 and 16, it says, In those days and at that time, same phrase, I will cause a righteous branch to spring up for David, and he will execute justice and righteousness in the land. In those days, Judah will be saved. Jerusalem will dwell securely. Do you hear that? Those two sides? He will execute justice and righteousness. Judah and Jerusalem, in other words, those who are on God's side will be restored and will be saved. And this is the name by which it will be called, Jeremiah continues, the Lord is our righteousness. In those days and at that time, God will restore Judah, he will restore Jerusalem, he will restore his people, because in those days and at that time, God will spring a righteous branch from the line and ancestry of David, and that branch is Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And so as we prepare our hearts for Advent season, the arrival of a Savior and the anticipation, the eager anticipation of his second coming, a season that we should focus intently on, the significance of that coming into the world and returning to the world. As we prepare our hearts for that, it's quite fitting that we are again reminded here as we were on last week, that the restoration of the people of God, the pouring out of the Spirit of God, and the judging of the enemies of God are all inextricably tied to the arrival of the Son of God. But according to Joel, why is this judgment coming? What causes God to summon these nations to the valley of decision for judgment. Scripture says, when I restore the fortunes of Judah and Jerusalem, I will gather and judge all the nations on behalf of my people. God's judgment against the nations is in fact here in this particular place, a response to all the collective harm that have been brought to his people through the years and the generations. He begins to describe this harm. He says in verse 2 that they scattered them among the nations. They were harmed because they were scattered. Continuing in verse 2, it says they divided up their land. They were harmed because they were scattered, and they were harmed because they were pilfered. They were robbed. And verse 3 and have cast lots for my people and have traded a boy for a prostitute and have sold a girl for wine and have drunk it. So they were scattered, they were pilfered, and they were enslaved. The ideal of casting lots for people is, is what you should take from that is basically they were treating the people like merchandise, like stuff and things rather than humans and people created in the image and likeness of God. And so as you read through just even that very first passage in terms of God saying, I'm going to bring judgment on behalf of my people. As you read through that, you begin to read and notice some of the same old patterns as relates to evil in the world. They sought power, these enemies of God. They sought power for themselves by persecuting and enslaving God's people. In fact, verse six, it says, You have sold the people of Judah and Jerusalem to the Greeks in, their, in order to remove them far from their own border. In verse four, you read this. In verse four, it says, What are you to me, O Tyre, or, or, or I'm sorry, O Tyre and Sidon, and all the regions of Philistia? These regions, these cities and nations that the Lord is speaking of, these are basically coastal border enemies. Because, and it appears that he speaks of them in particularly because these are the people that are on, along the lines of the coast shipping off his people to the Greeks across the waters into slavery. And so power is what they crave. But also, as we know, these same idols keep creeping up. They also sought money because they pillaged God's people of God's land. Even in verse 5, it says, for you have taken my silver and my gold and have carried my rich treasures into your temples. Silver and gold, that belonged to him, to God, and belonged in his place. They have taken it to their places. And then, of course, power and money. But what else? Pleasure. It's the same thing over and over again. When you think about the sins and the idols that that, that, that keep us bound, that that make us enemies of God, it's the same sins. Power, money, pleasure. They sought pleasure for themselves in selling people created in the image and likeness of God in order to satisfy their pleasure. Scripture says that they sold young men for prostitutes. They sold young women for alcohol. And so they enslaved for a one-night stand. They enslaved for a bottle of wine. Not only does that speak to the the horror of the pleasure, but that speaks to the cheapening of the life. Do you hear that? And so as the prophets have shown us over and over and over again, our sin issues typically lead us to the violation and exploitation of people, and that violation typically lands us in pursuit of either power, money, pleasure, or some combination of them. And God sees all. And God remembers all. And so he will not allow his people to be unjustly treated and exploited forever. In the end, he will establish justice towards those who oppose him and those who oppose his ways and his people. So how will the Lord establish this justice in the land? Verse 7 and 8 begin to tell that story. Now, I don't think this is a literal story as much as I believe it is a story that's intended to point out that God's enemies will receive their comeuppance. And their clamor for power and their clamor for money and their clamor for pleasure will be returned back up upon them. And So when you read verse 7, when you read verse 8, it's talking about selling their sons and their daughters from the, into the hand of the people of Judah. There could be some connection to that, but there's something deeper going on. Basically, it's saying you're going to get back what you put out. That's the point. But in what other ways are they being called out? What is the other how that God is going to establish justice in this land? Chapter 3, verse 9, look there with me. It says Proclaim this among the nations, consecrate for war, stir up the mighty men, let all the men of war draw near, let them come up, beat your plowshares into swords. And your pruning hooks into spears. Let the weak say, I am a warrior. Hasten and come, all you surrounding nations, and gather yourselves there. Bring down your warriors, O Lord. Let the nations stir themselves up and come up to the valley of God judges. For there I will sit to judge all the surrounding nations. Put in the sickle for the harvest is ripe. Go in, tread for the winepress is full. The vats overflow for their evil is great. Multitudes and multitudes in the valley of decision, for the day of the Lord is near in the valley of decision. The sun and the moon are darkened, and the stars withdraw their shining. You see, in those days and at that time, when God's people are people are being restored, God is going to summon the nations from everywhere. In the past, the nations would have invaded God's people, but in this moment in history, God will invite the nations that oppose him into his valley of judgment, his valley of decision for a final reckoning. So everyone that opposes God is beckoned to come and invited to come to this valley. And the people designated for war are invited to come, the strong warriors. But notice as we read, even the weak ones. It says, bring them all, prepare even the weak for for battle. And as verse 10 shows us, The time for peace with this group will be no more. It says that that you should take what in verse 10? Beat your plowshares into swords and your pruning hooks into spears. Now, this is a crazy reversal, by the way, because there are other prophets that declare similar things in Scripture. Both Micah, the prophet Micah, and the prophet Isaiah say similar things about plowshares and swords and pruning hooks and all of that. But the difference is, they give us the picture in the opposite. Here's what Isaiah says in this moment, in this this final day of the Lord. He says this, it shall come to pass in the latter days. Isaiah chapter two, if if you're taking notes. Isaiah chapter two, verse two. He says this, it shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house, the Lord, shall be established as the highest mountain and shall be lifted up above the hills and all the nations shall flow to it. And many people shall come and say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways in the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. Listen, he shall judge between the nations and shall decide disputes from many peoples and they shall beat their swords into plowshares, and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. You hear hear the reversal? Here God is saying, hey, all of the enemies, all of those that have stood in opposition against me and against my people, all of you, come to this valley of decision, this valley of judgment, and let's reckon. And if you got plowshares, beat them into swords. And if you got pruning hooks, beat them into spears. In other words, for the people who are on the Lord's side, the people who declare, come, let us go to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways and that we may walk in his paths. For those people, the war is actually going to end. The struggle will finally be over. We can once and for all stop fighting we can stop fighting one another we can stop fighting ourselves because now we will beat the swords that we had in the plowshares and we will beat the spears that we had in the pruning hooks and this is the testimony for god's people those that are on the lord's side however joel introduces to us life for those who are on the other side those who deny the lord those who stand against the lord those that that stand against his people Their peace will become war. Their struggle will not end. Their struggle will intensify because they will face and battle the Lord face to face, a battle that they cannot and will not win, but a battle that they will be asking for, that they have been asking for since their very existence. And so now God is beckoning them, come, take your plowshares, turn them into swords. Take your pruning hooks, turn them into spears and show up. When I was in school, we used to have have this saying, you know, you say one more thing to me, it's going to be 4.30. Y'all remember that? Some of y'all probably don't know what 4.30 means. 4.30 means that, hey, after school, it's going to be on. It's going to be all over. All the games are going to be over. And it's going to be on. God is calling out the nations that have mocked, I said, it's about to be 4.30. Everybody show up at the valley. Bring your plowshares. No, turn them into swords. Bring your pruning hooks. No, turn them into spears. And come and meet me in the valley. But take note of this, that although the Lord is calling for this kind of earth-shaking preparation for all of the nations, all the nations suit up. All the nations, bring on your strongest. Bring on your weakest. All the nations, take every tool in your possession and use it as a weapon. Verse 14 even says that it's going to be multitudes. Multitudes and on top of multitudes are gathered in the valley for this moment. And yet, how does God appear in this valley? Chapter 3, verse 12. Look at it real quickly. Let the nations stir themselves up and come to the valley where God judges. For there I will sit to judge all the surrounding nations. You hear that language? There I will sit. I'm not standing up. There's no fight. There's no there's no battle. The, the, there's no battle here. There's no there's no struggle here for me. There's no competition here for me. Yes, you can bring all your gear. And bring your strong, bring your mighty, bring everybody that you, that you, that you have. Bring them all to the valley, and I'm, I'm going to sit. And I'm going to judge. This is not a competition. This is not a real battle. The Lord is not overwhelmed by the nations, the multitudes upon the multitudes. The Lord is not overmatched by the multitudes upon the multitudes. The Lord is not even overly concerned about them. In the midst of this moment where evil has reached its peak, that's what verse 13 is all about, where it talks about the, the wine vat being full, talks about the harvest being ripe, talks about the, 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 the vats overflow for their evil is great. In this moment where evil has reached its peak, this moment where all the nations stand ready to wage war, God takes a seat in his valley. Fam, you do not want to be on this side of the Lord. On that day. For there's no running on that day, but neither is there really any fighting on that day. (laughs) Those that oppose may not be outnumbered, but they are incalculably outmatched. This is what awaits those that oppose God and His people. The Bible says in verse 15: the sun and the moon are darkened, and the stars will draw their shining. And then listen to this. The Lord roars from Zion and utters his voice from Jerusalem and the heavens and the earth quake. This is what awaits those that oppose God. Final judgment, decisive judgment, swift judgment, effortless judgment, just judgment. A lion roaring from the mountaintop, shaking the heavens, shaking the earth. But thankfully, this is not the only choice that we've been given. As horrible and as terrible as this destiny sounds, and will be for many, there's another fate on the final day of the Lord. And that fate, just as terrible as the other one, uh, other one is, is equally beautiful, equally glorious, if not more, for those that are on the Lord's side. On the final day, God, through Christ, will restore his people forever. It says in verse 17, So you shall know that I am the Lord, your God, who dwells in Zion, my holy mountain, and Jerusalem shall be holy. Strangers shall never again pass through it. It's a beautiful thing. Notice what God is establishing through his justice. He's establishing justice throughout the world, but he is establishing his name in establishing his justice. So you shall know. So all of these things, so you shall know that I am the Lord your God. Everything that's happening, all the judgments, all the restorations, so you shall know that I am the Lord your God. You know, there, there, there are times that it may appear to us that God is not present. There are times that it may appear that evil is, in fact, triumphing over us, because God is not powerful enough to overcome it. That's what it appears to be. There are times when we say to ourselves that maybe God's just not in it, maybe God's not here, maybe God's not powerful enough over this that's happening. It's just too much chaos for Him to control. And God says to that in the great and final day of the Lord, He will establish justice while literally sitting in the valley. And He will do it in order that the world may know who the Lord is. What else does the Lord promise in this day for those of us who call upon the name of the Lord? He promises in this text that He will make Jerusalem holy, verse 17 he will make jerusalem holy first john chapter 3 verse 2 it tells us what that means it says beloved we are god's children now and what we will be has not yet appeared but we know that when christ appears we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is god will make jerusalem holy on that final day he will make us like his son Our sins will not only be forgiven, but for those who called upon the name of the Lord, the sin problem will be no more. We will not only be wholly righteous in our position before God, but we will be wholly righteous even in our activities and our actions before God. Jerusalem will be holy. What else does he promise? He promises that strangers shall not never again pass through it. We will never have to worry about injustice again on that final day. We will never have the threat of bondage hanging over us on that final day. We will never have the threat of hurt or destruction or chaos or abuse or murder hanging over us. Only those known by God, however, will have access to this holy city that is not only holy but has no strangers, no impurity, no unrighteousness passing through it. What else does he promise? Chapter 3, verse 18. In that day, the mountains shall drip sweet wine, and the hills shall flow with milk, and all the stream beds of Judah shall flow with water, and a fountain shall come forth from the house of the the Lord, and and water the valley of Shittim. The Lord is declaring that on that final day, we will have all the best, and we will have plenty of it. Now, this, of course, is a reversal of what we've read in Joel chapter 1 and Joel chapter 2, where the locusts destroy all of the good produce in in God's judgment on God's people who had went astray. But God says now, as these people turn back to him in that final day, he's going to restore everything that's ever been destroyed. Everything that the locust has taken shall be restored. And this is the hope of the saints. This is your hope. This is my hope, that every good thing that has ever been destroyed in our lives shall be returned. And we can can point to a couple of things that have been destroyed, a couple of things that our joy has been robbed and our hope has been tainted. God promises that everything on that final day will be restored and will be restored in plenty. Every good thing that has ever been barren in our lives will on that great day be replenished at its best and fully stopped. Another point to consider is that Joel, in making his prophetic declarations, uses a lot of the other prophets' words when he makes them. For example, when he talks about this sweet wine that that, that is going to be dripping out off the mountaintops, that's actually Amos chapter 9, verse 13. Amos says the same thing, that the final day of the Lord is going to bring with it sweet wine from the mountains, and the hills shall drip with it, flow with it. Now, Joel adds the milk in this language, and he talks about not only will the wine flow, but the milk will flow, which is probably Joel's way of pointing back to that promise of the land of Canaan that was flowing with milk and honey. It's it's Joel's way of saying basically that only this time the land will be established and cannot be taken away from us. It cannot be undone. No strangers will ever come into this land and mess this land up. And the people that are in this land and that abide in this land will be completely and totally holy. And then he says in chapter uh, chapter 3, verse 19, that Egypt shall become a desolation and Edom a desolate wilderness for the violence done to the people of Judah because they have shed innocent blood. In their land, but Judah shall be inhabited forever and Jerusalem to all generations. In other words, Joel references Edom and he references Egypt because these were the ancient enemies of Israel, constantly wreaking havoc, threatening chaos, threatening oppression, threatening terror. But of course, like so much in the prophets, Edom and Egypt aren't really the point, they serve as symbols as everyone that oppose God and God's people. So the Lord is saying that on the final day of the Lord, in the same way that a righteous city will be established permanently for all eternity with every good thing dwelling in it that's fully stocked for all of those who call upon the name of the Lord for salvation, in the same way there's going to be, a, uh, every, in the same way every single unrighteous place will be done away with, will be laid waste, will be laid desolate, Those that are on the Lord's side will see restoration, redemption. Those that are not on the Lord's side will face judgment. Family, in the end of your life, in the final day of the Lord, there will only be two sides. The city that you're from will not matter. The state, the nation, even the school, it will not matter. The only thing that will matter is whether you are found in Christ or you are found outside of Christ. For those that are found in Christ, family, restoration awaits you. Redemption awaits you. A land of plenty awaits you. A land filled with peace awaits you a land with no more suffering, a land with no more chaos, a land with no more devastation and no more disappointment and no more destruction awaits you. But if you do not know Christ and you are outside of Christ, then judgment awaits. There is no reason why you have to face the judgment embrace Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. Wherever you are, whatever you're in, it does not matter. Christ is mighty and powerful and sufficient to save and save to the uttermost. Turn your your heart, turn your attention, turn your trust to the one who in the final day will restore his people making them holy, giving them a place to rest for eternity. Let's pray. God, we love you and we thank you. And we give you all the praise, all glory.